On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we are on with Dr. Daria Holler, who is a PT, but is also uh, one of the front-leading people on long COVID physio, who is looking at the effects of long COVID on the population, and really this is something that has been underreported, really doesn't seem to impact one specific population group more than another, um, but it's kind of this hidden effect of COVID that can mimic a lot of different things and is going to be really interesting to try and distinguish is it potentially related to COVID? Is it something else? And that's a lot of what we talk about in this episode. Uh, there was some initial return to play guidelines put out there and if exercise, especially as it relates to athletes. Is there a best one now? As we've gotten into this, we talk about some of the different things that have come up with some pro athletes. This is prior to what happened uh, with the Buffalo Bills uh, player, so we do not cover that. But uh, there was another highly public one about an athlete with some AFib and would that tie in. So really an interesting one to get a better grasp around this condition and how it might impact your clinical practice. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Uh, new kits coming out, all kinds of new things happening. Check out our la- one of our last episodes, number 122, uh, with Lawrence White talking about the Mueller Revive pneumatic compression and what sets it apart and makes a difference from everything else. But without further ado, please enjoy this episode. training chat we are on with daria oler um dr daria oler who's a pt and an at and if you've been anywhere on social media have seen her talking about long covid um and being a part of the long covid physio community and their board of directors and a myriad of other things with that group uh, who has been on the forefront of everything with covid and long covid since it started which seems like a decade ago um obviously not the case, but uh, we're going to talk about long COVID and just some more kind of in-depth stuff, some different things that have come up um, in the sporting world and just other things that we were just talking about offline until I hit record. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to turn it over to her to kind of fill in her background um, and then kind of bring us up to speed on everything and then we'll jump into it. Sure. So thank you for having me. I'll give a quick background on me. Um, So I went to James Madison University for athletic training and then Seton Hall University for physical therapy. So I've worked in a variety of settings with athletic training. This is my dog, Diesel. Um, I have worked clinically in a variety of settings for athletic training. I did youth sport injury epidemiology research at Penn State. I taught at Penn State. And now, don't mind my dog, I (laughs) am a physical therapist. The majority of my job, I am on site with a utility company. Um, so kind of like an industrial setting that we would say in athletic training, um, sure. which is a lot of fun, um, a lot of health promotion and prevention, which I really enjoy. And I spend a little bit of time in the clinic also. And then personally, so I contracted COVID in March, 2020. And I always say, I just never got better. And at that time, we didn't know anything. Long COVID didn't even have a name until May, 2020. <laughs> um, 
so I had just started tweeting as soon as I got sick and a lot of PT Twitter had said, you know, just share your story. We don't know what's going to happen. You're, you're going to be like our one case. So I said, okay. And it just, symptoms kept going and going. Um, and then kind of long story short, eventually started finding other physical therapists who have long COVID. And we ended up forming Long COVID Physio, which is an international association, largely PTs, but there's also ATs, OTs, speech, allied healthcare professions. And we do a lot of peer support, education, advocacy work um, around long COVID. We just hosted a big international virtual forum in September that had over 800 people register. Super exciting. So that's a big part of what I do now. Um, <laughs> uh, trying to teach people about long COVID. I'm going to make a quick note. My dog Diesel just had surgery. That's why he's super clingy right now and wearing a shirt. Um, it's yes, well so worth checking out the video if you're just listening to the audio to, to see the yes. dog. It's, it's great. <laughs> he's so, 90, sorry. He's 92 pounds. 92 yes. pounds wearing one of my shirts right now. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so long COVID has been a really big topic for me. Like I said, in the beginning, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know this was possible. You know, we all heard you would get better in two weeks if you didn't die. And you didn't hear about this like big gray area in the middle. Um, and Twitter has been really great. That's where all of us with long COVID have found each other, whether we're average person, whether we work in healthcare, researchers, um, advocates, anybody on it. It has been really interesting. And Twitter is where long COVID got its name. Twitter is where everybody's making connections with each other. So it's, from that end, it's a really neat thing to see and be a part of. For sure. Kind of just to set a baseline, um, just if you can define what long COVID is, if there is kind of a generally accepted description, and then just kind of based off of something you said, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen, you know, the two weeks, you know, like you said, is there anything that it's comparable to that people could like reference back to, you know, the flu is in every, you know, annual thing is ongoing, obviously, you know, all the different stuff, especially that's going on now with the triple demic and everything. So is there anything comparable that we've seen from, you know, a viral infection in the past? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so first with the definition, yeah, this is obviously evolving. Some of the just key things we kind of see is episodic in nature. Um, so somebody can be fine, quote unquote, one day and be very not fine the next day. Um, a lot of the symptoms can be unpredictable, um, which is really frustrating. Um, and depending on where you look right now, you'll see some people, it will be defined as having symptoms beyond four weeks. Sometimes it'll be beyond three months, lasting for another couple months. Um, and what's, what's interesting with this is long COVID is an umbrella term. So it literally just people continue to have symptoms going sure. on after their acute infection. And it could be, what's really important, the WHO has this, it could be confirmed or suspected infection because people like me, we didn't have access to tests and other people might not have a test for whatever reason. Um, so you don't necessarily need a positive COVID test or positive antibody test um, to be diagnosed with long COVID. But yeah, there's different phenotypes that we're learning about now. So it can include people who just generally are deconditioned the way you get sick and, you know, you get a little rundown. There are people with post-intensive care syndrome, PICS, which exists with other conditions also. We know many people have been in the ICD with this. That is a specific thing. There are people experiencing end organ damage, which is, I think, very scary. Um, and then people with a neuroimmune response, which is what I'm dealing with, um, and many, many other people are too. So the term long COVID kind of encompasses all of that. We don't, when we say it, we don't necessarily assume somebody has something or doesn't have something. So this is always evolving as we're learning more information, uh, which is really interesting as somebody who just enjoys reading research. Like it's very interesting to try to keep up with it and see who has what definition and when, like the World Health Organization didn't recognize long COVID until August, 2020, which now, you know, seems like a million years ago, but that was so many months that all of us were sick and we didn't even have any, 
you know, formal definition to put with it. And then for other conditions that are similar, I always admit, I knew nothing about this before. Sure. Um, so there is myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome. So we'll usually say ME for short. Um, and that is, we'll see that that's a post-viral illness. So people have had this from the flu, from mono, from benign, like things that most of us, you know, typically recover from and again, don't get better. And like the, one of the hallmark things, and we see this with, with long COVID with the neuroimmune response is you will have this crippling fatigue. Like we always say fatigue's not strong enough of a word. It does not even come close to touching what this is. And people who have, they call post-exertional malaise, PEM. And with long COVID, we started saying post-exertional symptom exacerbation, PESE. But basically that when you exert yourself, physical, cognitive, emotional, social, symptoms worsen. That is one of the hallmarks of chronic fatigue with ME that we're now seeing with long COVID. And you also see with them that rest is not, it doesn't help. Like you could sleep and you're still going to be completely exhausted the next day. Um, So those are some of the hallmarks with this. So we've seen this before. It just we didn't know, like most people didn't know about it. And, and for many of us, like I never learned this in school to my knowledge, I didn't have a patient with it. Nobody disclosed that to me. Right. Um, so that's been really interesting to know. There are researchers who have been in this space for a while and now, you know, I work with them now. Um, I'm like, how did I not know about this before? So it's existed. So you'll, when you see interviews sometimes about long COVID on mainstream media, if they don't mention chronic fatigue, everyone's like, hey, we were here we, this has been going on. It's just, you know, nobody really addressed it before. Are there any thoughts or theories that have come up on like why COVID specifically is potentially doing this? Is it the uniqueness of, you know, this, how it, you know, infiltrates the body or where it latches on or anything like that, that has come up obviously in the grand scheme of things that is super young compared to what we know from annual flu and da, da, da. But any any general like working theories that have kind of come up that anybody has proposed? Yeah. So one part of this. So remember when the pandemic started, we looked at this as respiratory. And now we see it's a vascular condition. COVID really affects the vascular system. And we know our vascular system is everywhere. That's why you see it's so multi-systemic. It can literally affect all body systems. Um, So that is unique, say, compared to mono, which we know is not vascular, or the flu, which is typically, you know, is not vascular. So when we're so when we're seeing some of the symptoms people have, some of them do match like what we see with chronic fatigue or ME. And some of them it seems to be like very specific damage due to um, the COVID virus. Um, So it's really so that's one thought on it is because it is very specifically vascular. That's why. and then what we're seeing, so just some of like the thoughts on what, why is this happening? Um, we see, this is all obviously being researched right now. There are more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the one theory is on viral persistence. And this has possibly happened um, with people with other viruses that led to any, um, but that they're still, they're finding the virus in people's bodies, in different body tissues. Even when you're testing negative, um, they found this postmortem on people. Um, that's that's really interesting because the thought is that your body's trying to fight it off. Like there's something still going on inside, but you you can't you know fully get, get rid of it. And yep. relating to that, we're seeing microclots. This is a really interesting thing being studied right now. Um, one of the really big long COVID advocates, researchers, clinicians, David Petrino at Mount Sinai, New York City, has been looking at this. And they're fi- a special way you have to look at this, but they're finding little microclots in people's blood, and that's going to impair circulation because there's thoughts that we become hypoxic or that you have um, you're not getting enough blood flow to your brain, which is really scary. Um, there's thoughts that there's an autoimmune response, which can also be why like something like ME happens. Um, 
so there's a, even like a reactivation of old viruses, like Epstein-Barr is one that's being looked at heavily because like 90% of the population gets Epstein-Barr at some point. Um, so the thought is that or other viruses that you previously had are getting reactivated and also leading to this. Um, so it seems like a combination of things we see with other, that can happen with other viruses and then just that the big vascular component with COVID. I appreciate the detail on that. One topic we were going to, which is obviously a big one, especially as it comes to athletics, is you know best recommendations for return to play or just return to activity. Uh, again, we were talking even offline about um, return to work um, for you know the industrial setting or just work in general. Uh, but obviously, those groups exert themselves <laughs> plenty in the day, um, and then. Kind of with that, I'm just going to bunch all this together and I'll just turn it over to you and let you go. You know, <laughs> where does exercise come in? I know early on um, there was a general, very kind of cookie cutter things going around about just gradual progression return and hoping to not exacerbate symptoms, you know, similar to, I don't, not to equate them like concussion, you know, you just graduated mm -hmm. return, similar to just return to play. Obviously, if things don't go well there, you should be stepping back, taking a look at things. But if exercise is not indicated, what other aspects of recovery need should be in, taken into consideration, especially in that athletic or working population? Well, that's the ultimate goal is to get back to, you know, activity as normal, in quotes. Yeah, so this is such a huge topic. I think for yeah. many of us, and sorry for the huge question. Medicine, Oh, no, it's okay. Um, actually, well, I'll put a side note this for everybody since I haven't gotten into like symptoms much. Cognitive impairments are one, but like I'm following along because sometimes I will always be very open if like my brain is not following, but I got it all. Yeah. Um, yeah, so with ex or sorry, with exercise, um, that, yeah, so many of us are not at all accustomed to this. Do you think, yeah, like, like concussion is a great example. A lot of people have like made comparisons between long COVID and concussion just in terms of things that we're monitoring for, like we're monitoring vital signs um, with the concussion protocol. But this, it is so complex. Like I mentioned how it's multi-systemic. This is not like a nice straightforward, simple orthopedic injury, you know, follow your standard progression and you're going to get from here to here at some point. Yep. There is so much that has to go on and exercise, unfortunately, for many of us with this neuroimmune response is dangerous. And I think that is just wild for people who work in rehab to have to wrap their brains around. Um, so specifically, we're seeing like the aerobic system is damaged, there's mitochondrial damage, their oxygen is not being transported properly. We're seeing deficits in gas exchange at the lungs and in the periphery. Like it is this aerobic exercise of all the exercises seems to be the worst option. And this is coming from research that's already existed with ME and then coming from us anecdotally, especially all the PTs and ATs and OTs and stuff who are trying to figure it out on our own with ourselves. Um, so when you are working with somebody, whether they, um, know that they have long COVID or many, we talked about this, you know, many people don't know <laughs> um, no. or just haven't have a suspicion. If people start reporting that with exertion, and again, it could be exercise, like formally exercising or just general exertion in life that they're getting worse. And, and people experience, so when I say the PESC, the post-exertional symptom malaise or, or less formally, we'll say crashing, that people crash. And it could be within a few hours of the exertion or within like a day or two, which makes it really hard to kind of understand what's going on, but are done. Like I always say, I literally cannot get up. I cannot speak when it's really bad. Um, so if you're hearing that, that it's not just your typical, my muscles are sore, I gotta get back in shape kind of thing, but people are like incapacitated or they have symptoms flaring up. Like some people get fevers, people get headaches, like sick symptoms. Again, not just like 
soreness from working out, but actually sick, that symptoms will flare up or new symptoms will pop up. Those are some of the keys that exercise is probably not the best option, really dangerous. So it is hard for us because in rehab, you know, there's goals and anybody who works in like an outpatient setting, you have insurance that you're answering to, and there's certain things they want to see. And this doesn't follow that. Um, Todd Davenport, who I reference often, who's a PT and has a whole background in ME, will always say like, this doesn't follow the rules at all for what we typically know. So in that case, like our goals are looking at, like a common thing is autonomic dysfunction. So our, our heart rates, our blood pressure, our body temperature, our digestion, just basic functions are not working properly. So if somebody's heart rate is all over the place, like literally people can just go from how I'm sitting right now to standing and their heart rate will be in the 140s. Like that's not normal, obviously. And that stuff needs to be under control way, way, way before we can even start to think about actual exercise. And there's protocols that already exist for autonomic dysfunction, which are actually like a little aggressive for long COVID. So people have been like working with modifying what those are. But that's like one example, just having to get the autonomic system working possibly a little bit better. And there's a lot of strategies to try to do that. Um, and as I mentioned, like the cognitive dysfunction, if take out the autonomic dysfunction right now, because that's a whole other thing, but say somebody has a cognitive dysfunction and you're putting them in a setting, say like a collision sport where you have to be aware of what's going on for your safety besides playing the game, you know, that becomes really dangerous, just like we see the concussion. So that's stuff you have to watch for because you could be putting somebody into a very dangerous situation um, and not just collision sports, but say like my husband's would be a max like action sports, gymnastics, things like that. You have to be very aware of the cognitive component if they're able to safely participate. Same with return to work, you know, I'm with like construction workers, are they able to safely do their job, not just the physical demands, but respond to emergencies and things like that. So when we see there have been many different organizations putting out return to play protocols, which absolutely drive me nuts. <laughs> um, and these are reputable. This is American Academy of Pediatrics. This is, is in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, there's a few others on this round, but there's like a handful of them that have come out and they're looking at return to play after COVID, not saying long COVID, just you had a COVID infection, sure. but they don't account for long COVID. There's not like a little asterisk or anything. And most of them are just looking at the cardiac component, which yes, that is very, very important. We know there have been yep. many horrible things cardiac wise going on right now. Um, but if you're not looking at the whole thing, you're saying, oh, just go to 75, 70% of your max heart rate, then bump up to 80% the next day. There's so much that's going to be missed. That if, the person, if the clinician is already knowledgeable on what you're looking for, it will be very easy to miss all of that. So I, right to me, like a lot of those protocols are very misleading. And we, it seems like we haven't progressed much from like the first one that I remember coming out, like maybe summer, early summer, 2020. Um, so it's challenging. Yeah, some people, it's, it's hard to say right now, but some people might not get back to playing their sport back to exercise, back to whatever they're very, whether it's a very demanding job, you know, working like a manual job or just even like something at a computer and people right. may not be getting back to where they were before. It's still obviously early to say, but based on what we know from other post-viral illness that might not be happening. Athlete specific prevalence of long COVID and athletes, again, you know, this is why we hit record, you know, talking offline um, a little bit about, you know, I, I didn't, I haven't stayed in the, that athletic realm, um, been out of it for almost, you know, a year and a half now, but definitely was in it for a while and working through all the different stuff and didn't really, we had a couple people that maybe took a little longer, uh, but seemingly everything resolved. I wasn't aware you know, of anybody you know that had it and just kind of watching the broad sloths of social media, you know, and people are you know, maybe not as interested in it it could be just because they aren't necessarily familiar with anybody dealing with it personally outside of interacting with yourself. 
am unaware of somebody that's been dealing with long COVID, you know, and whether they know it or not and care to share, but is there anything that's been out there that you've seen on potential prevalence, even best guesses? And again, I know everything in the research world on this is so early and yeah, this just is curious um, if there is anything. Yeah, for me, this is a really frustrating area. No. Um, and it, to, why is, I'm just being honest, why it's frustrating because as ATs, like we're there, like you could collect the data at easily at the college and professional levels, younger levels. I know it's gonna be a little bit harder, but we're there. I have not seen anything come out. So there are people collecting stories from the news. So that's going to be like your more elite level athletes. And I will sure. get them sent to me. People on Twitter send those stories to me all the time. And sometimes they make big stories like on real sports or ESPN or something like that. Or sometimes it's just like a little blip on like, you know, a newspaper article or something. Um, but yeah, I, I have not come across any numbers, which is very, very frustrating. And then that's even more reason if the numbers don't exist, like, you know, no one's going to really look into it. But right. what we are seeing is that it's happening um, to elite athletes. And so this is something I was not really familiar with before I had long COVID, but the ableism with it. So what catches people's attention, all people, is when you hear about that Olympian or the division one or whatever athlete that used to do, you know, amazing things. And now they're struggling to walk. That gets people's attention as opposed to like the average person being impaired. Right. But those stories are there. And I've come across some where athletes currently competing are, are like getting interviewed by the press talking about these horrible symptoms. I'm going, who's letting you play? This is dangerous. This is not just a little mild whatever. And what we know with athletes is they'll push. I mean, I'm one of them. We'll push through things. And so you can technically still participate in high level athletics with these symptoms. You shouldn't, you definitely shouldn't, but I'm one of them. I ran 10 and a half miles dealing with like insane symptoms. Um, so that's, what's tricky too, is that if you're only looking at, can they play? Like literally, are they able to go out in the field or whatever it is and do it? That's going to miss also long COVID because they can, but you have to look at what's happening afterwards. What is their function? Like, are they actually able to get up? Are their symptoms getting worse? So it, I think this is all leading to why it's not getting picked up at all. Um, and going back even to the ableism, like we're not necessarily used to having many high level athletes all of a sudden becoming disabled. Obviously there's always disabled athletes, but at this where there's many of them who all of a sudden struggling. So it is really frustrating. I keep looking, I'm looking for the big sports medicine, you know, entities to, tr to put out a study, but not seeing it yet, unfortunately. So anecdotal, and then I'll add too with sports, um, anecdotally just this is all through social media but many of us experiencing this we seem more like the endurance kind of athletes the runners the cyclists sure. swimmers i'm in a face i would say i'm in a facebook group for endurance athletes with long covid and you know early on we were hearing about all of the people who were older with their comorbidities being high risk and we're like we were technically low risk we were super super fit with our low heart rates and blood pressures um so i i, I don't know that anybody's looked at that to see is there some something going on with that that being in that high level endurance athlete group is increasing risk for long COVID. You don't know. Kind of on that line, you know, balancing potential pre-existing conditions, COVID infections, and how it's potentially related or not, and how to best navigate that, you know, in the context for that, you know, we ran within our sports medicine group, um, a study in the fall where part of, you know, just trying to do our best due diligence at the time and per the resources that we had accessible to us, because it's a division three school, we're at the mercy of access and insurance compared to division one, where you can potentially cardiac MRI, everybody, you know, so on and so forth. 
but we looked at you know EKGs as part of the return, um, maybe finding a few small abnormalities that we would refer to the cardiologist. Really, you know, focusing on that area because that was one of the big concerns, um, as you referenced as well. You know, the heart kind of a big deal. Um, but there were no other symptoms in some of these. You know, so were we just finding something because we were looking in that right. sense? Because yeah. if you do that, you know, and then. Um, we were planning to record this closer to when this uh, the thing came up with JJ Watt, and all of a sudden he was in AFib. Obviously, we don't know his full medical history. You know, he had previous COVID um, infection was that the reason? You know, I we can probably draw lines through a bunch of different things. Um, but yeah, just how do you potentially balance that? Do you, you have to assume it's potentially COVID related? Can you get too far down that path and potentially overlook a bunch of other things. Yeah. You know, and I know that's a big question, but just from you being so tied into all these other people, yeah. what what have you seen? Oh, it's challenging. So on one end, you have to rule other things out. Like this, like long COVID shouldn't be just like, eh, it's probably long COVID. Like you have to rule other things out. There's so many stories of people who ended up with horrible things that they assume was long COVID and actually was like cancer or something. Um, so that's really important. I have to add that first, super, super important. Um, but yeah, so something interesting with this is we're seeing, and this is kind of anecdotal, but also we've already seen with ME. Um, and every time I say anecdotal, I have to clarify, like this is through like many, 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 many people on social media, particularly those who work within healthcare. So not just sure. random. There's some validity behind this. Um, but we're seeing like, say people who are neurodiverse, maybe already had ADHD or people who have Ehlers-Danlos, people who are hypermobile seem to be getting long COVID more. Again, I don't have like set numbers, but that's, a, we're seeing those trends. Okay. Uh, or I was not a, not a pre-existing condition, but I was interviewed um, for a queer magazine a few months ago because at that, in the summer data had just come out from the CDC that by the bi and trans communities have long COVID more frequently than straight gay and lesbian communities. And it's like, that's it. like the numbers are big enough that that's a noticeable difference. And there's things like that that you have to start kind of putting pieces together again. We don't have set profiles yet, but it's just kind of like, you know, little things that you're looking at. You're like, well, I've heard this from a few other people already and it seems to be more common. Um, but we, again, we don't have like set things yet. But yeah, it's tricky because you, you can't go down a rabbit hole. We all know if you do so many diagnostics, you're gonna find something that may not be anything. But what's hard with, with long COVID, unfortunately, a lot of the standard tests come up negative. Um, and that's where it's tricky because, and this is with other chronic illnesses too, it's like, oh, you're fine. It's like, you're not fine. We just ruled out that it's not these things. And a lot of the testing right now um, that we're finding other stuff is still, it's in research stages. It's not, it's experimental. It's not, you know, something commonly being done in hospitals, things that are not available, like the microclotting that I talked about, like, those the equipment they have is not available commercially right now um or insurance won't cover some things like when i mentioned before the um the problem with gas exchange in the lungs you have to inhale a specific inert gas and like that's not something everybody you know is going to have available so that's really, really hard too that you you want to rule things out and see what else is going on but we don't have all of the testing like readily available for everybody mm -hmm. but yeah it's tricky because if somebody like i said before has adhd um this often when i do interviews and things so i have three friends who are PTs with long COVID and they all had ADHD before long COVID, like diagnosed, have their medications and everything. And they all got their ADHD symptoms got significantly worse when they got long COVID. And for me, I don't think I had ADHD before that I, I'm aware of. 
and I definitely have symptoms of it now. So there's stuff like that. We're like, well, that's pre for them. You know, it's pre-existing. Things have really ramped up a lot, and you have to be careful because this happens a lot now with long COVID that things get chalked up to pandemic stress, <laughs> anxiety, which does happen. Obviously, sure. people can experience that stuff, but that you're not just dismissing all the symptoms and calling it stress or anxiety when it's actually stuff going on. But yeah, it's not necessarily easy to to tease some of these things out. Or people, there's theories too that maybe some of us had some like ADHD, some low level things um, with autonomic dysfunction too. I don't think I had that before, but some people reported that they did. And then it, it really flared up afterwards. So you have to be good with the medical history and see maybe people might not even have an official diagnosis, but they'd be like, hey, yeah, you know, I used to notice anytime I stood up, I would get a little lightheaded. My heart rate would go up. You're like, huh. And now you have long COVID. That's interesting. And it's odd too. It's different than what we, what I mentioned before with people who would be severely acutely ill in the hospital, like those comorbidities, you know, the, like mm -hmm. diabetes, that stuff. It's, it's different with the people with the neuroimmune response or it's, we're seeing a different patient profile. Just kind of piggyback off that and the testing again, you, you mentioned it, you know, nothing commercially available is anything showing promise you know i know with a lot of these chronic conditions that you've referenced you know that are similar but obviously different there may not be a true test is there anything that's showing any kind of promise to really narrow down about long covid stuff or to at least help maybe address some of the things that you've talked about yeah the microclass is the big one um that is going on right now like this is like keeps popping up on my social media that, that's a really big one and from what i'm aware of not that i know all the details but most everybody who has long COVID that they've tested has shown microclots. And then they see when they are able to help break them down, the symptoms resolve, but then also the microclots come back. So they haven't quite figured that whole thing out yet. That's one. And then not from a, I think like a, like a medical diagnostic, but what we know from ME, there is a cardiopulmonary exercising, exercise test two-day protocol and you're on a treadmill. And for the average person, they typically do like roughly the same from day one to day two. Maybe they have a little bit of muscle soreness or something, you know, not a big mm -hmm. deal, but you'll see for people who have ME and then probably with long COVID, um, they will be significantly worse on day two. Again, having those six symptoms, the post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise will do markedly worse. And you, and it, it's, it doesn't fit with just being deconditioned at all. And we'll see like people with ME have, a lowered um, ventilatory anaerobic threshold. Again, much lower than what you would expect if somebody was just deconditioned because they were sick for a couple weeks or a couple months. So those are things that are there, but what's challenging with CPEP, the cardiopulmonary exercise testing, is it will crash people with long COVID or ME. So some people are willing to risk that, to have, you know, look at my data now, look at what happened. And other people say, I can't, like I cannot risk getting worse for days, weeks indefinitely. Um, so it's interesting, the groups that do that, um, they very much appreciate the risk people are putting themselves at, just, you know, to basically contribute to science. So that's something that's available, um, not necessarily for everybody, but that is something that will show, like, there's a difference between the average person and somebody dealing with long COVID or ME. Got it. Oh, um, I to actually, with um, autonomic dysfunction, too. That, I mean, this is just straightforward stuff, but you can watch someone's heart rate and get it locked sure. down, sitting, standing, and see drastic changes that way bigger spikes in heart rates than what you would expect to see changes in blood pressure that are much larger up or down than you would expect to see again not specific to long covid but that that does tie in with autonomic dysfunction yep absolutely on kind of the last 
question we had with it, and you referenced it a little bit, was the ableism with long COVID um, and how it's impacting a patient's I put in their recovery. And you kind of referenced, you know, maybe not so much the recovery as it is the journey, but uh, if you want to just kind of expand on that as you, you touched on it earlier. Yeah, the ableism, this is, to, for me personally, is wild to experience as somebody who was previously very able and you know, could do anything. Um, so with the ableism, th we are seeing, there are many news articles and even like some published editorials and journals and stuff coming out where we are told it's in our head. We have kinesiophobia. <laughs> and I can tell you, we want to move. We, we are not happy having to stay still. Um, and because we are now chronically ill and or disabled, we're not believed anymore. We're all of a sudden, even as healthcare workers. Um, so I was in a, um, I was interviewed for an article in the Atlantic Magazine last year by Ed Young, who was this amazing Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, got his Pulitzer for his coverage of the pandemic. Um, and it was all about us as healthcare workers with long COVID not being believed by our own colleagues. And it's like, how do you not believe me? I, I know what I'm talking about. This is my experience and I have the science. But all of a sudden, when you become chronic, chronically ill or disabled, you're no longer like, quote unquote, a reliable narrator. You're, you're no longer able to tell your story. And it's so crazy because, you know, three years ago, people would have believed me when I'm talking about, if I was presenting this as just something I was interested in learning about, but now me telling it as a patient, all of a sudden people are saying, that can't possibly be what you're going through. And then even when I was talking before with the athletes, that, yeah, we see people who are not being listened to or taken seriously because they previously, for whatever reason, were not high level athletes, physically fit, you know, something like that. But when they report to their provider that they no longer can stand to brush their teeth for a few minutes, they, they struggle to try to prepare a meal, they can't take care of their kids or, you know, their families or whatever. And that's just like, ah, you know, it's brushed aside because it's not a big, you know, giant task, but it actually is really important. Um, that's so frustrating. So I always like struggle with when I talk about what I used to be able to physically do as a runner, as a dancer, as just an overall very fit person versus now mm -hmm. because I'm saying, listen to me, I used to do this and now I can't. But I'm like, well, what about the average person who, you know, just didn't, wasn't very physically fit. That stuff still matters too. So it's really hard. It's a, I'm not, I'm still learning how to, to deal with that. <laughs> and there's obviously a whole body of literature on ableism and a lot of the great ad, um, advocates that I am learning from now and people who have other chronic illnesses and disabilities who have been reaching out to the long COVID community to teach us as patients how to advocate for ourselves and then reaching out to us as clinicians and researchers saying, you know, here's how to be inclusive. All of this too. Um, so I mentioned with long COVID physio, we had our big virtual forum in September and we were very, very specific to include patients in our sessions. So we had literally yeah. world renowned researchers and clinicians and everybody on the topic, but we also included patient voices because in healthcare, for some reason, we don't include patient voices at our conferences. We just listen to each other talk about it, which is now that I go through this is crazy. Um, and, and why wouldn't we include patients? Because they don't know enough of the science. They don't, you know, they can't necessarily cite journal articles, which with long COVID and ME is not true. I will say the patients tend to be better versed in the research than the clinicians are. Um, but yeah, we, we dismiss people going through the conditions, which doesn't make any sense because I'll say like as a PT in a clinic, you know, with insurance, um, insurance is saying we want to see their six minute walk test to get better we want to see their one minute sit to stand get better like whatever stuff on the patient end they're saying one i don't care <laughs> like it literally doesn't matter to me if i could walk six minutes you know farther or whatever 
you know, two, this is making me worse doing this exercise. And like, this is instead, these are the priorities that I have, but we don't listen to the patients. We say, nope, the research says we're supposed to do a six minute walk test. So that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's just, it's interesting. I think uh, hopefully because this has been such a patient led movement, um, us as patients, we're talking about long COVID long before any of the healthcare people were listening to us. Hopefully we're now showing people how to include patient voices instead of um, discriminating against them. It's fair enough and a good point about getting the patients involved. Anything else that we haven't covered COVID, long COVID related that you wanted to before we go into the athletic training chat questions? Yeah, actually, because I have this open on my phone, so I didn't forget to mention it. Before we were talking about return to play, if I didn't have this open on my phone, I 100% would have forgotten. But when we we're talking about return, I'm opening out, return to play and all. So on the work side of things, because return to work is huge, and it's not to diminish returning to sport, because for some people, that is their job. Yep. Um, but for work, many people have to work. Um, and some places are very accommodating and some are not, some can be accommodating some jobs, literally just, it's not, you know, option, but with long COVID physio. So some of us, not me, but some of us put out a really great paper on December 3rd, that is return to work for people living with long COVID, which is fantastic. And what I, one of the things I really like about it in comparison to what's available right now is sports is there is no chart with the days and the, you know, check this box and check this box. It is looking at like, what do we need to do to help people? What are the things that we're looking at? What are um, potential like accommodations and things that can be met? So there is, it's a great example of there, this is not one size fits all. I mean, nothing should be that way, but it's not one size fits all. And it's not just a nice linear progression because there are some of us on our executive board of long COVID physio who already have a background in episodic disability. I did not, but some people clinically or research-wise do. So they're, mm -hmm. they're pulling from that and what we already know and how can we best help people and also help them to advocate to their employers about what they're dealing with and understand that, you know, it's going to be a roller coaster of stuff and, you know, how do we make this work best? So that's a really great resource on our website, longcovid.physio. We have so much information that's available, all free too, which is wonderful. Um, I plug our website a lot because there's so much great information um, besides the science which there's a lot of it. You can see all our work, like this link will go up there. Um, we also have a podcast getting our our own stories, our lived experiences out, which a lot of patients find really helpful. Our virtual summit, all the, the sessions, the talks are now up for free on our YouTube, which is really nice. Um, but yeah, that's important. I would say to anybody, everybody should learn about this. This is something where it's not just niche. If you happen to work in this setting or this population or special, mm -hmm. everybody needs to know about this because everybody will be interacting with people with long COVID. Right now, some of the data is showing approximately two to 4 million people are out of work because of long COVID disability, just in the U.S. alone. Um, in the U.S., it's roughly 20% of people who have long COVID, who have COVID go on to long COVID. So that's over 20 million Americans. As of June, I will say that's over 20 million Americans. I'm sure it's much higher now. So this is something everybody needs to be familiar with, even if you're not quote unquote treating somebody with long COVID, like you at least need to be able to recognize it. I always talk about my spidey sense when people start just talking to me about whatever and they'll mention something and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so I know what other you know questions, to, where to go from there. But our long COVID physio website has so much great information and it's like super accessible too, because we are now all learning about living with disability. So it is a very accessible website, lots of languages that are available. Um, that is a great resource, but I think everybody needs to know about this because unfortunately we are all gonna know people with long COVID if we don't have it ourselves. Not everybody discloses it because this is a very heated polarized topic, unfortunately, which is also affecting our access to care. For sure. But 
I will say everybody needs to learn about this. Anything else before we jump into those questions? Just listen to patients. The thing, the biggest thing that we've learned that long COVID is emphasizing is listen to patients. If something, especially long COVID related, sounds weird or like that doesn't make sense, there's no way. Like how could exercise be making someone worse? Just believe people. Absolutely believe them because there are over 200 documented symptoms in the literature. It affects all body systems. Um, if something sounds just not plausible, believe it. Don't assume somebody is faking, you know, malingering, whatever those horrible words are because this, it's real and it's not easy for people to talk about. It's not easy for people to describe what's going on. Like I didn't have the language to describe this when I was first experiencing it, which is really difficult. And especially if you're working with kids, um, there's long COVID kids, which is up on social media. They are fantastic. They're out of the UK um, because kids are obviously gonna come with their own you know, unique special things. Mm -hmm. And it's even harder for them to you know, convey what's going on. A quick example on that, um, this is during our long COVID physio virtual forum we had a session on pediatrics and they were saying, I mean, we need to rest and pace. Those are the biggest things with long COVID is like resting and pacing. But for kids, if they're young, they can't rest and pace and stay home because they have to be with the adults. They're not old enough to be home alone. So what do you do? Oh, that's terrible. I didn't even think about that. As an adult, I could stay home. A child wouldn't. So that's, there's with kids in school, there's so many other, you know, considerations that for we sure. have to think about. Um, but yeah, and resting and pacing, biggest, I didn't mention it before, biggest thing <laughs> is working on that more so than trying to push people into physical activity. Good advice. <laughs> All right, uh, first question. Obviously, you referenced, you know, AT working, mainly, you know, PT focus, but um, where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? And if you could set the example. I am hoping that we, tying this in with long COVID, are really advancing with being like the first line of contact for people, because I know that's already obviously happening in school settings and some team settings, but that we are recognized and able to be more readily available to people. So as we're moving into the, like, I don't like the phrase, but like non-traditional settings um, sure. that we're there, because the, long COVID is a perfect example, perfect example. You're going to be the first person somebody's talking to. They might be coming up to you for something totally unrelated, or you, they think it's unrelated. Um, so that's why I would like to see that go, that we're, you know, becoming even better, more proficient with it, identifying all our, like, you know, general medical conditions yep. and being that first line of contact and helping to keep people out of the medical system if they don't need to be, if we can prevent things, if we could triage things, if we could get to them sooner than later, because we know our, our healthcare system is a little messy right now. So hopefully help to manage things um, before they need to escalate. Yep. And that messy system doesn't seem to be getting any less messy. Oh, it's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you go back and give yourself as a younger athletic trainer, or if you, if you want to a younger clinician, we'll just leave it kind of open um, in that. And then if you could kind of set the timing of when that would be. Oh, from right in the beginning, like as an undergrad is to, to think more and learn more broadly. And this I'm assuming has changed a little bit because I was an undergrad like 2002 to six, um, but to not pigeonhole, like say, traditional AT, like I want to work with this sport and everything's going to be this sport at this level, branch out. Like having a sure. broader foundation earlier ah. on is so beneficial. And then go, go into your specialty, whatever, you know, wherever you specifically want to go into later is fine, but start more broadly. Like I would say as a PT, I'm very frustrated that at the time when I just graduated, no one encouraged me to work in a hospital. And now that I have so many friends who that was their first job and there's so much they know medically, there's so many things they're amazing at 
that you're not going to see in like an outpatient setting or a school right. setting or what have you. And in relating that to AT, I just see that as like, you know, there's certain settings in sports that are like, you know, idolized by people, but broad, don't dismiss any certain settings. Don't dismiss certain ages of people, genders, what have you get a lot of different diverse experience first, starting when you're a student. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I say that with anybody that now comes through our kind of physician extender, you know, to see that and you can pick up so much that is going to make you a better clinician just by seeing x-rays. Not that you're ever going to necessarily read them or, you know, read MRIs, but like just understanding what you're looking for, how it impacts and how the physician or surgeon is looking at it can just, it, it's been even eye-opening for me. I would love to almost go back into the traditional setting because I would look at injuries in just such a different way now um, that I think it may, would make me better at it um, and help, you know, as you referenced, just make better triage decisions and what needs to go where and when and how we could handle that. So I, I agree completely. Oh yeah, I want to say quick. When I was in, for PT school, um, we had four like internships, and two of mine were inpatient. One was subacute, so sort of like a, a rehab nursing facility, um, and then one was acute rehab for people with traumatic brain injuries and severe acquired brain injuries. And while I don't work with those patient populations now at all, I learned so much, and there's so many things that I pull from it. And the randomest thing will pop into my head from 2007, <laughs> right. you know, and, I'm, and just because of those unique experiences, even though I knew I wasn't going to go into those settings, there's so much that I gained from them. Absolutely. What has been the most influential resource that you found in your career? I'm going to be very biased and say long COVID physio, <laughs> which I know because it's me. But well, many of us, but why I say that is not only literally the information, like our content, but that we have assembled internationally from, I don't even know how many countries at this point. And we, again, largely PTs, but many other professions too. And just learning how to work together, learning the differences, because the way like PT is in the UK is very, in Canada, even it's very different than the way it is here and explain yep. to them like ATs, because, you know, ATs are only in a few countries. Um, it's been amazing to see the work that can happen when people just work together. It is, it blows my mind to see all the things that we are involved in. Like some of us, not me, like work with the World Health Organization. Um, it is just amazing. And our chair, Darren Brown, who's a UK a physio, they're called physios, a physio in the UK is just phenomenal. And I was saying, how do you do this? How do you know to do this? How did you even know? these were the steps we needed to take. And it's because we're all coming from such different backgrounds, mm -hmm. whether not just countries, but the specialties we work in, the settings we work in, are people clinical, are they academic, is it a mix? Like there's just so much that has gone on. It's been amazing. I've, I've learned so much from everybody um, that I have not gotten you know, anywhere else in all of the 16 years that I've been working. For sure. so, so not just content wise, but just it's, we have this incredible international association. We have an executive board, and our executive board, we have multiple people filling each role, knowing that we all have disabilities and one person can't and shouldn't do it all. So even that learning how to accommodate people um, for wherever we are at at any given time, it's been absolutely incredible. As a clinician in your role, how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> oh, I'm laughing because it is ridiculous. Um, this is where I always feel very hypocritical because part of my job when I mentioned health promotion and wellness like an industrial setting we talk about it's not just standard I guess injury prevention like um, we typically see but we're talking we're getting a lot into nutrition and 
rest and sleep health and how to manage different stressors and all these things. And I'm like, for me, particularly with long COVID, it's so difficult because you're constantly picking this or this. Like I can go to sleep earlier and get my eight hours, but now I'm going to be sitting on all this documentation and I'm, it's just going to pile up you know, more tomorrow. And we constantly have to make these choices, which is, I previously used to be able to like, oh, I could just stay up. I'll be fine. I don't need to literally be fine. not sleeping that much and just go. And now I really, really, really have to be aware of it. Um, I will make it a point This sounds, this is going to sound silly to people who aren't going through this, but I'll make it a point to sit down whenever I can. And it's interesting knowing that just random conversations I've had with people unrelated to long COVID judge people if they sit too much or they lean on something and like i'm saving energy that's making sure i could get through the rest of the day i'm not going to say that but that's you know what i'm thinking mm -hmm. um there's so much i now need to be very very aware of just i i joke but it's like literally keep myself alive making sure i'm not gonna pass out in a dangerous situation but then on the on the other end of it what's really hard now um because of long covid and this is not just me this is everybody with it um we can't do the things that used to help us, like your stress relief. I'm gonna go out for a run. I'm gonna go hang out with my friends. I'm gonna go, me, I used to love to walk around New York City, but now those things are dangerous. Now those things will actually probably make everything worse. Um, so it's trying to find what can I do that's that's good for me, you know, that's gonna help me feel nice when I actually can't do the things. So I'll, I'll give an example of this. This is, this is interesting. This is like totally by accident, but I had to, I had a dentist appointment last year, super painful. like emergency appointment, very painful. Long COVID is also causing dental problems. And I looked at my Garmin afterwards, expecting my heart rate to be through the roof because it's really painful. And my heart rate was low, like a good low. I'm like, that's weird. And I figured out because I was in Trendelenburg, I was tilted back like pretty far. I'm like, that's helping with cerebral blood flow. That's helping my autonomic nervous system. How do I do this? So I bought a gymnastics wedge. I'm five feet tall. The wedge is exactly five feet long. And I will lie on it, you know, on that decline. Um, which helps. I don't have time to do that every day right now, unfortunately, but there's little things like that that I'm trying to figure out how to do to like, to best manage because we're finding that all of us who used to push and push and push cannot do that anymore. For sure. And the nice things, like I have this lovely dog sitting next to me and I have another one on the other side. <laughs> Always a good thing. Too. Absolutely. And then one more, and one more thing on that too, something I am learning to be much better about now than I was. It's like asking for help. And we, with Long Club, we have our own little network of people. We have little groups within our groups, you know, and like, it's, it's nice that people will check in on each other, see if you need anything, like, what can I help with? Um, even whether it's professionally, because we have so much work that we're trying to do while we're not okay, or just, you know, on a personal level. So that's been really nice. So I will make sure I will check in on people and then people will make sure that they check in on yep. me, which is nice because we all understand what each other's going through. Absolutely. Uh, if you could change or eliminate one thing, could be a modality, common practice, mindset. I'll just leave it open in kind of the AT, PT clinical field. What would it be? I have two. Can I say two things? Yeah. <laughs> I have two things. <laughs> one of them, which I, I said this often, is like that's the way we've always done it. It's terrible. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't matter why. That is terrible. Yep. specifically long COVID we're seeing that because people are pushing exercise and very dangerous I diesel um but that is just everywhere whether it's oh we've just never had women in this setting that's the way it is which I was told as a student <laughs> that I was not allowed to work in certain settings solely because I'm a woman um or we just always did these modalities we just always fill in the blank that is it's not good healthcare. it's not good science we should be progressing constantly with the literature so that is one and then the second one, this is also becoming like a bigger kind of, I guess, interest in 
point of mine is being way more inclusive. And when we, because everybody talks about DEI, you know, that's the phrase now. Um, but I don't think we actually understand and appreciate what that means. It's not just about like race and ethnicity, but we talk about ableism. So considering people with disabilities, considering people of all different like orientations and things, and really making sure we're being inclusive and creating belonging. So not just that you're tolerating somebody who's different than you, but you're actually, you want them there and they feel as though they belong because we see that, you know, that's not happening across the board in AT and PT. Um, like as an example, all the conferences that are unmasked, those are not accessible to me. Like NATA was in Philly, that's super close to me. I'm like, I can't go. And then there was obviously many cases, so it's good I didn't go, but stuff like that. Um, there's so much that we need to be better aware of. And it's just a matter of listening to the people who are telling you something's wrong and whether they're being discriminated against purposefully or in, unintentionally because of who they are, that you're listening to them and actually, you know, taking that to heart saying, how can we fix this? Not just saying, well, you need to contact your representative. You need to do this. You need to do that. But like, no, what can I, as a person in a position of power leadership, you know, whatever, what have you, what can I do to kind of help them too? Last one, and again, I'll kind of just make this broad, is what does being a clinician mean to you? Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, the, my views on this, I feel like, have grown so much in the past few years, but it is being able to hopefully listen to people and meet them where they are. That I think many of us early on, we kind of learn it's a more like paternalistic view of healthcare, and I'm the expert, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way it should be for the most part. Um, but you're actually really listening to what people are telling you and you're able to help them, whether it's because you directly can help them because they have something going on that's within our scope of practice or that you were able to listen to and validate them and know where to refer them to and not even just a general referral, but specifically this is, this is where you need to go. This is the person, yep. this is the facility um, that you're able to, if you can, you know, reach out to advocate for them. If it's contact, talking to their family, talking to employers, if you're allowed to talking to their school and things like that, to be able to help them do what's most important to them. When we look at say within sports and return to play, that is important for people, but what else is going on in their life? What are all the other things that they also need to be able to do and how can we help them do that? So it's just, it's been so interesting the past couple of years to see how that's sort of, I think improved for me. And just, I will look at it as like, you're seeing me as a patient. What is it that you can't do right now that you would like to be able to do? And what can I do to help you? Absolutely. I think that's a really great and important point. Just to kind of wrap things up, if people wanted to connect with you, follow you, reach out, what would be the best way for them to do that? And then we'll obviously link all this up on the episode page. Fabulous. Twitter, on tap physio um, is the best option. I know things in Twitter are changing and I don't know where <laughs> it's going to go. So in case Twitter's not an option, um, my email is just my name. It's daria.oler, O-L-L-E-R, at yahoo.com uh -huh. um, is also, I love Twitter. I absolutely love Twitter. Um, we're trying to keep it going <laughs> within our little long COVID community, but that is, that's typically the best option to find me. That little Twitter, if you get that one figured out, it's probably just as much of a mystery as some of these other things on what will ultimately happen, but we will see. Well, I just wanted to say thanks again for taking the time, shedding a little bit more insight on long COVID and some of the things that go around with it and appreciate, again, taking the time. I know we've tried to schedule this a couple of times, so 
your patience in getting that set up as well. Um, and we'll see where this goes and potentially have a follow-up at some point in the future, yeah. uh, pending yeah. just kind of how everything seemingly shakes out in the world. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Athletic Training Chat with Dr. Daria Oler and me, your host, Joel Lutke, who's still trying to figure out long COVID and how it balances between everything. But we really, truly appreciate you listening. Uh, if you want to find more information on long COVID, long COVID physio is a great place to start. And there are a lot of people that are willing to answer your questions on social media. Uh, you be so willing, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. Any reviews, people you want to talk to, things we could do to improve. Uh, we want to hear it. We just like getting to meet everybody within the profession and highlighting what they do. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Please help support us and our partnership with them in the Thorough Lifeline program, which is getting basic emergency equipment to athletic trainers now more important than ever um, plus a lot of other things that we're looking to do now that clinically pressed our overall parent company has become a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, check that out at clinicallypressed.org we got all kinds of different things that you can contribute to and donate to help us make a positive impact on athletic trainers and people's lives and fitness we'll catch you next episode